Let us pray. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. Jesus is coming again. Until He gets here, we continue to depend upon God's matchless grace. And we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Good morning. Y'all a little warm? <laughs> yes, no, okay. I figured that. I should not ask. Um, Christmas party is going to be this Friday, and we have a sign-up sheet for those of you who want to bring a covered dish. It's going to be on us before we know it. And I know that when the service is over, hopefully you're thinking about the message. We try to remember to go back there and put your name down here because if everybody thinks everybody else is going to bring something and nobody does, it's going to be harder to have a Merry Christmas. There's not going to be any Bible class Tuesday night and there'll be no Wednesday night young people's class because I'm going to be at a conference in Dallas. Something I meant to say the last two Sundays and I didn't do it, so I'm going to do it today. Margaret Kaufman has a book of poems and whatnot. Margaret, it's good to see you today. And, okay, um, here's a, just a sample of what is in here. The difference between complete and finished. Marry the right woman and you are complete. Marry the wrong woman and you're finished. Marry the right woman and get caught with the wrong woman and you're completely finished. That and other witticisms are in this. They're in the library. Thank you, Margaret, for making those available to us. Okay, let's... Prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the opportunity to name privately any unconfessed sins to God the Father, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your faithfulness that you change not, nor does your word. We thank you that you have given us everything necessary for us to grow to spiritual maturity so that we can be good and faithful servants. We pray that you will help us to concentrate this morning. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11.
And we're going to start with verse 14. We're just going to drop right in on verse 14. We've already looked at the maps. We've gone over so much information. But I want to prepare you for verses 14 through 19. Because a lot of people have a particular viewpoint of God and they see His love, His mercy, His grace, His gentleness. They see all of this. And for some people, that's all they know of God. They think this encompasses God's character. And certainly, all that is true. And it is limitless. But what they fail to see sometimes is the other side of God, which is righteous and justice. And what we're covering in the last few verses of chapter 11 are focusing on that aspect of God. And for some, it's hard to abide because they really don't go to that part of God. They only like to concentrate on, I'm not going to say His good side. Both sides are good. We're so thankful that He is also righteous and just. But we are so unaccustomed to justice and righteousness these days that when you see the justice and righteousness coming out in the Bible, some people are uneasy Some are even offended. So we're going to take the time to address these verses in a way that hopefully will help those type of people to understand that His justice is just as important as His grace and His love and mercy. With that said, let's look at verse 14 through 19. And all the spoil of the cities and the cattle and the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He let nothing done of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all that the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and that land of Goshen, the land, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak that rises towards Mount Seir, even as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. In fact, we we saw last time that uh, all that we read up to chapter 11, which was about, well, there was ten chapters of it, took about a year. But what is condensed down in chapter 11 took five or six years. 
So that's the long time. You might just pencil that in right there when it says a long time. Verse 19. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now, that last portion we're going to see is more important than what some may think it is. But we'll look at that. The nations were destroyed. Actually, they were city-states. And everything that breathed was killed. Three reasons why God wipes out nations like the Canaanites and their despicable culture with them. I'm going to put this on the board so y'all can see it. Sexual immorality. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. That's supposed to be number one to the side. It didn't come out. Leviticus chapter 18. I said there's three things that will cause God to wipe out a nation as He did the Canaanitish people. Leviticus chapter, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 18 and verse 3. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not walk in their statutes. Now, as we go over into... We're not going to go read all of this, uh, all of these verses. But what is listed between verses uh, 3 and verse 25 was done in Egypt as well as in Canaan. So God is making sure that His people are not going to adopt the practices and the customs that were being done in Egypt. Now they're going to another land. These things, abominable things were being done there. So He is emphasizing. Just think, they had been in Egypt for 430 years. Do you think you could adopt somebody's custom by then? Do you think that might be easy to do? They had that baggage already, and then where they were going was a place where the people were doing these same things. And so he is emphasizing, you're not to act like these people. Verse 5, or verse 4. Oh, no. Did I read 4? Okay, verse 4. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. I want you to underline a man may live. Underline that part. This is not some kind of euphemism. It's not symbolic. He's talking about if you want to live, if you don't want me to take you, out of this world, you better obey me and abide my 
obey my commandments because if you don't, I'm going to take you out. Now, we're not going to read all of these, starting with verse 6, but you'll kind of get a flavor for what these people were doing. Verse 6, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Now, uncovered nakedness means to have sexual intercourse with someone. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. And it goes on. Uh, the, the list is pretty comprehensive. It includes in-laws, and I guess you could say outlaws as well. There was to be none of this uh, sexual immorality. God was not going to stand for it. Look at verse 17. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. Nor shall you take her son's daughter or the daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. That first part, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. That means to be having sexual intercourse with both. You don't always get a, a, an opportunity to witness God's Word come to fruition. But I, I knew personally a young man, 19 years old, that was healthy, big, big, strong guy. And he was dating a girl who was, I think, 17 at the time she was going to high school he was having sex with her and when she would leave to go to school he would go to her home and have sex with her mother and he was bragging about it he had everything to live for he had a four year scholarship to nearby university football scholarship and I had a, a, a urge, something that I, I just felt a, a great desire to witness to him. And I drove quite a ways one day. I had to act upon, no doubt, the moving of the Holy Spirit to witness to him. And when I went to talk to him and give him the gospel, he was in his regular mood. I, you know, he's he's cool. He's completely worldly. And when I started talking about the gospel, he got somber. He was listening. And it appeared that he accepted the gospel because he asked me to go to one of his close friends to give them the gospel also. Before he reached his 21st birthday, he got leukemia and he was gone. I saw in him the fruition of what we see here. There are certain things that God will not abide. And this guy, you talk about being glad that I acted on that motivation to go and witness to him. And it was not easy to do because I had not been around him a whole lot. And it was hard to bring up something of a spiritual nature to someone who was that carnal. 
But he may be in heaven today because of that. But my point is that these are not just things that you read in the Bible that don't come out in actuality, in what we might call shoe leather living. I witnessed that myself. Verse 18. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival, for she is alive, while she is alive, to undercover her nakedness. Drop down to verse 21. Neither shall you give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Moloch was an idol, a pagan idol, on which the Canaanites would offer their children as a sacrifice. I read a little bit about this. Some say that this was an offshoot of Dagon, which was a fish god, but also uh, kind of uh, went along with this same uh, Moloch character. Some of these were made of iron, and they would heat them on the inside till they were just red hot. And the idol had arms out lifted like this with a space on top that they would lay their children when it was red hot. This is how decadent they were. We're not going there, but you might write in your margin here at verse 22, uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. That gives you more information about this uh, idol and what God thought of it. Surely you want to circle verse 22 in Leviticus chapter 18. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Some people wonder. They kind of argue whether homosexuality is a sin or not. If you can ha- if you can read the English language in our compass mentis, you're rational, then there's no question. Verse 23, Also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Verse 24, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. They were doing all of this. Verse 25, For the land has become defiled, therefore I have visited its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So what I'm showing you is that the reason that God had them annihilate, they didn't occupy the land, they didn't go over there just to occupy it, they went in to decimate and annihilate all of this wickedness that was there. Verse 25 says, it was time for God's wrath, His judgment to act. God always has grace before judgment. But I don't know about you, if your wheels are turning, then you realize that every time you hear of another audacious uh, sexual immorality that we are now accepting, it gives, a, gives us 
a reason to pause and think, uh-oh, we're getting closer, we're nudging closer and closer to that line where God's judgment will surely fall. The second thing that God does not take uh, lightly that will ruin a nation is apostate religion. And we have here uh, Moloch. We just went over that a little bit. They had human sacrifice there. And the third thing is uh, demonism or the occult. This is found in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Let's go there. Three things. Sexual immorality, apostate religion, and demonism are the occult. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. Y'all still aren't hot? Y'all aren't warm? Garth, will you see, if it's, if it's set on 70, will you hit it about 67? It's on what? Oh, can you turn the heat off? Can you help him, Kent? Okay, I'm, I'm about to take, come out of this coat, the reason I'm saying that. And I've got the fan going. Uh, verse 9, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, that passing through the fire was sacrificing your infants, your children to Moloch, one who uses divinations, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord, your God, will drive them out before you. So, we have three things going on here. And I, this didn't come out right the way I had it. But uh, essentially what this is saying is, what do you do when you see a rabid dog? Do you try to rehabilitate it? No, you get rid of it. You destroy it, don't you? And nations, people, can get to the point to where they are like a rabid dog. They, they, become to, they get to the point where they cannot recover. And God waited a long time for the Canaanites to come to this place. And when He did, when they did, then He used the Israelites to wipe them out. And all three of these things were going on simultaneously both in Egypt and in Canaan. So we start to see uh, that this isn't an outrageous thing that God has done. What He did was altogether proper. It was righteous. It was just. And just because God's grace goes to a point doesn't mean it's not going to fall, this judgment. Don't you think we in this country need to remember that? 
Because every time the boundary is pushed further and further away from God. And the thing that is most disturbing is how believers, even church-going believers, get so accustomed to it that they just, oh, that's all right, that's fine. You know, we're modern, sophisticated people. We can accept that. But there's a day of judgment coming. And I don't know when it's going to be, but I do know this illustrates that God will act on any nation. I don't care who it is. When all three of these things are happening, and I'm telling you, they are happening in our country, and we're up to our, we're right about here right now with it all. And I don't know how much longer God's justice is going to delay, but it is going to fall. If we don't make a 180-degree turnaround, I don't see that happening. I don't know whether we are going to be out of here before everything hits the fan. I don't know. But for us, we don't wring our hands either way because we're in a win-win situation. Because even if God's judgment does fall on this land, He's going to put a wall of fire around us. He's going to take care of us. We are the light. And when it gets darker and darker, what happens to the light? It gets brighter, doesn't it? That's what, he, that's what should be expected of us. Okay, we, we, we took care of those verses. And now we're going to jump out of the frying pan into the fire with what we have next. Let's go back to Jer- uh, Joshua, chapter 11. Verse 20. For it was, the, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that they might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses now some of you might already be vibrating I think I feel the the floor shaking a little bit God hardened their heart wow I just started I was talking about God's justice and his righteousness in the very next verse What are we talking about? God hardening people's heart. Well, a lot of people have a hard time of that. First of all, let me say, if anyone thinks that God or the Word of God says anything that would besmirch God's perfect character, the problem is not God and it's not His Word. The problem is what you're thinking. Because God is absolute, perfect, omnipotent in His righteousness and His Justice. It's impossible for God to be unrighteous. It's impossible for Him to be unjust. So we have to scratch our head and figure out what's going on here. First of all, we can think back to Exodus when the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The first key in understanding this is that every time this, this type of thing is, is mentioned, it's always 
connected to the negative volition and the defiance of the one that is being spoken of. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times before God ever hardened his heart. Here's a quote from the uh, New American Commentary. It says, Pharaoh responded to Moses and Aaron's request to be allowed to leave Egypt with a defiant statement. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let the people go. He repeatedly hardened his own heart. If you want some verses, Exodus 7, 13 and 14, Exodus 22, uh, excuse me, Exodus 7, 13 and 14, and Exodus 7, 22, and Exodus 8, 15. All, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And remember when there was a, a plague? Then Moses would go back into Pharaoh, now will you let my people go? One or two times he said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. But then he, he changed his mind. There was a purpose for that, and we'll see it in a moment. There's no way of knowing how many Egyptians were saved because God's mighty omnipotence was revealed because of the ten plagues. A host of Egyptians left with the Israelites when they departed Egypt as believers. Why? Because there were ten plagues. There weren't four plagues. There wasn't six plagues. And God was demonstrating through all of this his omnipotence, His power. And this is what it took to bring them finally to the point to where Pharaoh broke and let the people go. And of course, the tenth plague was the firstborn was dead if they did not obey to put the blood on the post and the lintel of the doorway. So God had a reason for doing this. He was just in doing it. And it showed his power. Remember when we got into uh, Joshua and we heard about Rahab? What had Rahab heard about? All the great things that God had done in Egypt. So not only did it help the Egyptians understand who Pharaoh was defying, the word got out, and I don't know how far it went, but we know it went all the way to Jericho. And here you have a uh, woman in a pagan city, a prostitute, and she was saved because she had heard about these plagues and believed in the God of Israel. Another point I want to make, not only with Pharaoh and Egypt, but as well as the Canaanites, they had all this time to turn around and to humble themselves before this God. But they never did. They never... Not one time did they ask for a treaty when all this was going on. The Canaanites had heard of the great victories and about the omnipotent God of Israel. You find that in Joshua 2, 9 and 11, Joshua 5, 1, Joshua 9, 1, Joshua 10, 1, 11, 1, all are talking about how these people knew what was coming. They heard about it. They all had a chance to submit to Him, but by this time they were so hardened that nothing would make them yield. If they had submitted to God, they could have been spared like Rahab and the Gibeonites. Remember them? The Gibeonites did it kind of underhandedly, but the point was they knew who they were dealing with and they submitted. They didn't defy them, but since the Canaanites persisted in their defiance, 
they were utterly destroyed. And I think there's a mood afoot in the country, maybe around the world, I don't know, that you can, get, you can defy God and get by with it. Look how many people defy God today. Not only unbelievers, believers as well. I'm shocked at how many churches have people who don't even hide the fact that they are shacking up. Uh, if that does, term doesn't relate to you, they are cohabiting. They are having sexual relations outside of marriage. And people think, oh, well, that's fine. Society is sure fine with it. How many movie stars do you know that are monogamous? Some of them say, well, I believe in marriage and I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage, so they marry every other year, or sometimes even more than that. This principle is not only true of nations, it's also true for individuals. And this is true also for not only for unbelievers, but believers as well. God may send a catastrophe to an area that has a high concentration of fiendish believers, or excuse me, unbelievers. You remember the earthquake at Haiti? In Haiti, remember that? Not that long ago? Haiti is a hotbed of occultic, demonic, voodoo-type worship. And someone might say, well, that's kind of stretching it, saying that God sent that. Well, is, in God, is God in control or not? If He's in control, at least He allowed it, if not sent it. So God, even when it comes to these deplorable, uh, wicked people in a certain area, God will only abide that for so long, then sometimes He will wipe it out. That's what He is doing to Canaan. But here's the shocker. He also does it to believers. A believer can only go so far, and then God is going to jerk his chain. Believers who defy God by ignoring his mandates with an ongoing indifference are not immune from his wrath or his judgment. That's what the. the this, I keep connecting this to what is so pertinent throughout the whole New Testament. There's very little in the New Testament. I shouldn't say very little, but compared, comparatively speaking, there's not that much in the New Testament that's talking about uh, being eternally saved. Most of it is warnings to believers. And it's warning to, the warning to believers is, believers, you need to be saved. And the believers are shouting back, we're already saved. We already have eternal life. There's nothing required of us now. The, the Apostle James says, you want to bet? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 27. Why don't you go there? Because I want you to highlight this. Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 10 are very controversial parts of Scripture. And the reason is because most people take the salvific view of just about everything in the Bible. That means they think that everything applies to eternal salvation. And what I'm telling you is most of the time, it is not. It's talking about the experience of a believer.
I forgot. I had this on. Um, I had this on PowerPoint. So if you don't have a, if you don't have a Bible, I'll put this up. Hebrews 10, uh, 10 uh, chapter 26. Excuse me, chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning, now I want you to underline, circle, make a big point about we. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, was a believer. Agreed? And he's saying if we, that includes him as well. Because he's not even talking to unbelievers here. He is talking to believers and he is including himself. He says, if we go on sinning willfully. Now, every time we sin, it's willful. I mean, we sin because we want to. Nobody's got a gun in our back saying, okay, start gossiping. All right, I've got a knife to your throat. You better start worrying. The guys don't have a spear in their side with someone saying, you better fornicate or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. No, this willful, willful sinning means that you, you know you're not supposed to do this and you do it and you keep on doing it. So if we go on sinning after willfully, uh, sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of truth, these people knew the truth, but they went on and gone were sinning anyway, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I'll put this in very quick context here. This was, of course, written to the Hebrews, Jews, and after Christ was sacrificed on the cross, after His atoning work, there were Jews that knew and had believed in the atonement of Christ, but they were being pressured by the Jews who did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And they started going back and making sacrifices again after Christ had made the sacrifice. And if you go on doing something like that, there is no sacrifice, there is no atonement that is going to cover that, as long as you continue to do that, you are going to be under great discipline. So if these believers continue to do this, there's no longer anything that remains but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, and that is talking to believers. Believers who think that they can ignore God, ignore His Word, and just put their spiritual life on the back burner. This is what you can expect according to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's bring it into a little bit closer context of what we've been studying on Tuesday and Thursday. We've been studying recently James chapter 2, which is probably the most, if not at least one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. In James chapter 2, verse 4, he said, what use is it, my brethren? Won't you, talk, won't you go there, James chapter 2? Circle my brethren. Who is James talking to? Unbelievers? He's talking to believers. James chapter 4, I think is verse 5. It says that they have the Spirit of God. These are believers that he's talking to. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith 
Now, we spent a long time exegeting this and the word pistis here. The word has two meanings. Here it means the object of faith, and the object of faith in context of what he's talking about is doctrine, is Bible doctrine. What good is it if a person says that they have doctrine but have no works? And the works here is referring to application. Knowing the Word of God is not enough. If you don't apply it, you're still in big-time trouble. That's the message of James. So he says, can that faith save him? Can the doctrine that you know save you if you don't apply it? Now, remember, nothing here in James has anything to do with eternal salvation. It is not salvific. He is dealing with deadbeat believers. And he gave an illustration. They wouldn't even give food or clothing to someone who was hungry and naked because they thought, I don't have to be bothered. I have doctrine. I'm going to heaven. So what? doesn't matter. And James is saying, oh, yes, it does. So he's saying, he's asking, he's telling them, what use is it if you have doctrine and no application? Can that faith save him? He's talking about saving from a premature death. Do you know that as a believer, God holds you responsible for the way that you make your decisions, your volition, whether it's negative or positive. And if you go negative and you think you can defy God and you can ignore Him, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go against Him. You already are if you're not obeying Him. It doesn't mean that you have to start being actively uh, engaging in, uh, in things against Him. All you have to do is go negative and not obey the positive commands to take in the Word, to grow in grace, to stand firm. All these things you can ignore. And you will get to a point, just like the Canaanites, that get become so hardened, so indifferent to God, that He will take you out. A premature death. It's called the sin unto death. All, we are all believers, I assume here. I don't know for sure. I'll give the gospel when we're done, just in case. But a lot of people think, well, I'm going to heaven. Ali, <laughs> Ali, oxen free. You know. But what about what the Bible says? Oh, I'll get to that sometime. I'll, I'll, I'll even go to church and give a nod to God. Surely that will give me some points. That's the way a lot of people think. So you see that God is very serious about people who think that they can defy Him. We're not just see what I'm trying to help you understand is we're not just talking about ancient people and ancient nations that were obliterated because they got they went negative. There is a direct application to us. That's what I'm showing you, and this is why the Holy Spirit had it written in such detail. James was speaking to believers who were in danger of coming under such severe divine discipline because they were hearers and not doers of the Word. They had believed the gospel. They had eternal security and thought nothing else is required of them. How many believers do you know that are like that? Oh, I know. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm a, I'm a believer. Well, a lot of them won't even go that far. They'll say, are you saved? Well, I hope so. You know what they do when they do that? See, we, what, what we've been we've been studying tactics and strategy on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What to say to people who say something as asinine as that? 
What I've done in the past when people when I when people say, "Well, I hope so," I said, "You're not sure." Well, I'm, I'm trying. Would you like to know? Would you like to know for sure if you have eternal life or not? If they say no, you know what I say? Have a good day while you can. And if they say yes, I'd like to know where would you go? Do you know? Some of you look like you don't know. Write it down. First John. Write. First John. Y'all are still looking. I say, write it down. Y'all do. First John 5, 13. These things are written to those who believe on the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. That's the Word of God right there. problem is, a lot of people say, well, I, I know I have eternal life, I'm home free, but I'm not into all this doctrinal stuff. There's just a bunch of weak people that go here a, a windbag and call it religion, and I'm tired of all that. And unfortunately, they're probably right in most cases. But God's going to hold them accountable to their, for their volition, because if they want to know doctrine, I guarantee you, I will guarantee you, God is going to see that they get it. Because he doesn't lack the power. He doesn't lack the wisdom. And that's what he wants from them. That's why this church is here. That's why any church is there. Because God is going to feed that positive volition. And he is going to hold people accountable who don't give a damn. Speaking of damn, that's what they're headed for. And I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about going to hell. Forget that. I had a, a PowerPoint and I lost it. It used to be of a Confederate sergeant. Forget hell. You've seen that before? But we can forget hell, but what we can't forget is business at hand. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I bet you all think I'm going to verse 8 and 9, aren't you? Huh? I'm going to fool you. That's not where we're going. See if I can get this up here. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Oh, that reminds me, by the way, I meant to say this at the beginning, but I can say it now. Um, we have a new scripture memory verse for December. Did y'all happen to see it? Let me tell you. There's a couple of elderly ladies that made my day before church because we were talking about the memory verses. And one lady says she cuts that out, the portion that has the verse, and puts it in a can. And she goes and she has all of them. Well, I think we have six so far. And she will pull it out, and each one of them is in there, and she'll pull it out, uh, you know, like not knowing exactly which one, to make sure that she knows it. And another one, you, she opens her Bible, and right here, stuck in the front, are cut-out memory verses. Are y'all feeling pretty bad about yourself now? I hope so. They're taking it seriously. These are powerful verses. They are divine dynamite, right? As we're studying in James. It's no good if you know a couple of words of a verse and you can't put it together. It's like having dynamite and the, and the match won't light. You know? 
Ephesians 2.10. For we, this is referring to believers. Are you all here at Ephesians 2.10? We believers are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto what? One more time. Yeah. Some of y'all work about the same way that you pronounce that. And I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not looking at anybody. Yes. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of going haywire here. It's Ephesians 2.10. You can kind of see the rest pretty well. Okay. Which God hath ordained that we should, what? Walk in them. Before the world was even created, God had good works for us that we should walk in them. And what's amazing is this comes right after Ephesians chapter 2, chapter two verse 8, that says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of your works. In verse 10 is saying, you better work. That's not confusing, is it? Verse 8 and 9 refers to eternal salvation. Verse 10 refers to your experience on earth. You better get with it. You better start producing some good work. And the only kind of good work that you can do is the kind that the Holy Spirit does through you. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if you say, man, that pastor motivated me. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start being nice to people. And I'm not going to be so stingy. I'm not going to be selfish. And I'm going to quit complaining. I'm going to do all these things. And all that is nothing but a big pile of manure if it's not done on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the problem is a lot of people don't even know what the filling of the Holy Spirit is. They don't even know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know I'm telling the truth. How many people do you know outside these walls or go to other doctrinal churches for the most part? If you go up and say, uh, can you tell me... Uh, the Bible says, commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, how does one accomplish that? And look at their face. That would be a good exercise over the Christmas holidays because you're going to see people. And when they start talking about, oh, is it baby Jesus just wonderful? And you say, yeah, he's wonderful, but I'm going to ask you a question. How about being filled with the Holy Spirit? That's wonderful too. How does that go about? How do you do that? How about this one? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Who is he talking to? Look at this. For we, believers, brethren. All this is directed towards brethren. The hearers of the words and not doers of the word. Those that think, well, I've got it in with God. I understood the gospel, and that's fine. But, you know, we don't have to get carried away. We don't have to overdo it. When I used to go to Baraka, six days a week? Yeah. Well, actually, seven. Twice on Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Saturday they had a movie, and Sunday they had two services. And I don't know, it holds over a thousand people. And you could hardly get a seat. That was back when people, the nation as a whole... We're more hungry for truth. And people would ask you, would ask me, do you go to church? And I said, yes. Well, what church? I say, Baraka. But what? They already 
the name already thinks, well, you're some kind of cultic person. Well, when do you go to church? Well, it'd be easier to ask me when I don't go to church. Then they were all confused. Anyway, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means you have to control your body with this. Because your body doesn't have one of these. Well, it has a brain, but you are the one that's supposed to control the brain. And when you have urges, when you have these things that you want to do that God said, no, 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 uh-uh, you've got to control it. That is what it means when it's talking about present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Look at this. Which is your reasonable service. It's, it's only reasonable that we do that, is it not? God's not asking something that is way out of the question. It's our reasonable service for us to do these things. And be not conformed. Actually, in the Greek, it says stop being conformed. Because that's our nature. We want to be conformed to the world. We want to go along to get along. We don't want to stand out and everybody say, Oh, you're a prude. Oh, you're one of those wackos. Yeah, you go out there in that church off the highway, don't you? Yeah, I heard about you. That's being said. It was said about me anyway. I don't know about you, but it has about me. And be not conformed to this world. But look at this. Be ye transformed by doing a whole lot of good deeds. Is that what it says? Where is the battle? Right here. You have to be transformed in your mind. And that's what's happening this morning right here and now. If you're plugged in, if you feel the Holy Spirit, then you'll recognize that our God is righteous and He is just. And when His wrath falls, it is altogether proper and it has ramifications. He can even make, when His wrath is poured out, He can even turn that into good. He can make people in other countries on the way away from where His miracles take place to hear about it and turn to Him. He can take people like the Canaanites, and when it says He hardened their heart, it means that He just kept on and kept on giving them more and more opportunity. The reason, listen to this, the reason that you don't see in, through any of this, after all this obliteration, everybody knew that they were next. Nobody raised the white flag and said, uh, we'd like to make a treaty. Let's have a powwow. None of that. Why? Because it was important for God to stamp this cancer out. Because you leave a little bit of cancer left, what happens? It can be fatal. God is not only doing it as a just and righteous God, He's also doing it because He loves His people, the Jews, the Israelites. Had He not done that, what chance would they have of obeying Him and following His ways? Slim and none would be the chance. Oh, man. I'm out of time. Well, we sang a lot of music today, so I can... (laughs) Let's see what else I got here. Okay, this is a good place to end. I've got one one short paragraph here. And most of this was on uh, verse uh, 20. Next time we're going to start with verse 21 and 22, and we're going to talk about 
the Anakim, the Zazumim, the Raphaim, and Og. Oh, goody. You know who they were? Giants. But I get off course here. It was important that all the Canaanite people were annihilated because like cancer, any portion that remained could be deadly. The time for the punishment of these demonic pagans had come according to Genesis 15:16. Remember, God held off. He was not going to let the judgment fall till the iniquity was full, and it was full. They were hardened. They couldn't be reached. That is why the Israelites were not allowed to make a treaty with them according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2. Even if they tried, God said, don't make a treaty with them. These people have to go. Okay, I'd like everyone please to bow your heads. I think it's important that we realize that God is a just God. He has gone further than anyone could ever imagine in providing us with salvation to be delivered from His wrath. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived in the glory of heaven for all eternity, stepped out to become a man lower than the angels. No no doubt there were gasps throughout heaven of angels just could not believe it. To go undergo the ghastly horrors of the cross for you and for me. As He hung on the cross, He said, It is finished. The sin problem has been taken care of in total. He was buried, resurrected, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. If you do that, if you haven't done it, you have this opportunity now. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. God knows what you're thinking. And in that moment that you believe that Jesus Christ did go to the cross and take care of your sin problem, and there is no other way of salvation apart from Him, when you accept that fact, believing in Him, you are born again. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. And what I've been teaching about is what it's going to be between now and the day that you breathe your last. Because what we do now is going to determine what we're going to be for all eternity. I didn't say it's going to determine where we're going to be. It's going to determine what we're going to be. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed and you can do it right now. Father, we're so blessed. We're so fortunate to have Your Word that is alive and powerful and it goes all the way into those areas in our soul that nothing else can penetrate. We pray that You will help us to understand the urgency of being good and faithful servants and we cannot do that in ignorance. We pray that You will motivate us to be hungry for Your Word. Not only to learn it, but to apply. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.